Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How are you? How are you? How are you? Um, welcome to another episode of the Dangerous Dinners podcast. I am your host, Tom Green. How are you? Sit yourself down. Get ready for another culinary adventure in rubbish takeaway food. Uh, I guess that's how I'd uh, describe the podcast. Every single week, we sit down with a celebrity guest. We spin a giant roulette wheel. Whatever it lands on, we've got to order that rubbish takeaway. I uh, then have as long as the food turns up to get to know my guest. That is the idea of the podcast, and we are now at episode number 11. My God, 11 episodes have been doing this. Feels like we are doing it forever, and then I look in my diary, and it's like, you've only done two months. It's not that long, is it? I am a bit of a whinger, though. This is the sort of thing I'd whinge about, you know. I, I realized I've whinged about everything in my life. I was really busy for the last two weeks because I was covering uh, Hits Radio Breakfast, the Hits Radio Breakfast show, which Fleur Reese normally does. I was doing it for two weeks. Um, and I said, like, God, I'm so busy. I have no time to sleep. I'm up at 3.50 a.m. in the morning and do a podcast. And now that's done, I'm a bit like, oh, God, I'm bored again. So I've realized that in life, I will complain about anything. Um, but I feel like a lot of people are the same as me. So it's all right, complainers. We'll get through this. So, as always, if you like the podcast, can you do me a massive favor? Because we've really slowed down on reviews recently. We had loads of reviews for the first few weeks, and they sort of slowed down. So if you do like this, please go to the bottom of Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Make sure you are subscribed. Uh, we're on Twitter right now. It's the DD Podcast. We're on Instagram, the Dangerous Dinners Podcast. We've got a YouTube channel set up right now. Yeah. If you just go to YouTube, search The Dangerous Dinners Podcast. All the best bits of the show live on there. Right then, sit yourself down for episode 11, guys. Today's episode is by Billy Billingham. Yeah, boy. So what do we know about Billy? Real name, Mark. Uh, he joined the Parachute Regiment in 1983 and served until 1991, holding down an array of positions. Patrol commander for operational tours in many worldwide locations. Uh, he joined the SAS in 1991. He's fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, South America and Africa. He's led hostage negotiation situations. He's a counter-terrorist sniper instructor, advanced evasion driving instructor. He does jungle warfare. He does demolition sabotage he's a ski mountaineer he does combat survival he's a counter-terrorist instructor oh he's done everything not only that he was very famously a bodyguard for brad pitt angelina jolie sir michael kane jude law hulk hogan kate moss tom cruise and russell crowe he's a hard man isn't he he's well hard so sit yourself down and prepare for swearing throughout it's billy billingham <laughs> The Dangerous Dinners Podcast with your host, Tom Green. 
one celebrity guest, one spin of the roulette wheel, and a tour of the best and worst takeaways, which are delivering to us tonight. What will it land on? We let fate decide. Up for grabs today, we have the poorly reviewed Kansas Fried Chicken, everybody's favorite, Lahore Karahi, and if it all goes wrong, Pizza Palace. But before we do that, it's time to meet our celebrity guest. They're famous, they're funny, and they just arrived downstairs. It's time to bring them up. Please welcome. It's Billy Billigan. Oh. Hello, mate. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> that was uh, unexpected. You got me. Um, and uh, welcome to the Dangerous Dinners podcast, Billy. Absolute pleasure, mate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apologise already because I feel like I'm going to take up your whole evening. Do you know when you find someone interesting at a party and you stop them and don't stop talking to them? I feel like that's what I'm about to do to you, Billy. I hope you keep, I hope after about 20 minutes you're still awake and I'm not bored you sleep. You're in Sydney right now. Yeah, we are. We're um, out in Australia for the second series, celebrity series of uh, SES Who Dares Wins. So, yeah, we're, we're getting ready to be released into the uh, wild and uh, start running with that in the next sort of five or six days. Because you were just saying before we started the podcast that you're in a sort of hotel lockdown right now. You're not allowed to do anything. No, we're, uh, it's very, very strict out here, mate. Literally, when you come off the plane, um, it's like going through a, a nuclear biological process. It's, it's bizarre. You know, everybody's in gowns and it's it's quite intimidating. Wow. And you get played through... That baggage taken off, you're putting the coach for you, you're putting a coach, you can only sit in certain spaces, blah, 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 you got to keep masked up and all that. You get to the hotel, don't touch your luggage, it gets put inside, you stay in one straight line, social distance apart, get processed through a, a you know, like talking to somebody in a golfing ball because everybody's cocooned, and then you get led up to your room, in you go, they put a key in, so you've got electricity, and then they take the other key away so you can't get out. Well, you can get out, but you, you, there's uh, security on every floor. Um, you get a knock at the door, you have to wait 10 seconds, let them walk away, then you open it, see what it is, and generally it's your food, which ain't good. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, and that's it. That's it for, sorry, and then day two, you do a COVID test. Every single day, they ring you and go through all the science symptoms, and you have to tell them how you're feeling, all that stuff. So day two, you do a COVID test, they come and prod your skull. Day, and now we've had to do one on day seven, which is unusual. It's normally day two and day 10, but day seven they made us do one as well, and then one on day 10, because apparently somebody coming over on the flight is it may have had COVID, so. Oh. And then we're going to do on day 16 after we're released. So wow. they're, they're pretty stringent. What day are you on right now? Day nine, I think. So you legitimately haven't left the hotel room in nine days? No. Wow. No. I mean, I'll be honest, I embrace it, mate. It gives me a chance to sleep when I can sleep because my sleeping pattern is absolutely ridiculous at the minute. I'm just grabbing an hour here, a couple of hours there. Yeah. I, I literally went from being in the States because my wife's out in the States and we live over there. I flew back, did lockdown in UK. The day I came out, I, I had to go and do a COVID test and the next day flew out to here. So back into lockdown here. That is um, insane. I can't, but, but to be fair, how they're doing it in Australia is probably how we should have done it in the UK from yeah. day one because there's there's no cases out there. Life's back to normal. Yeah, they've got a couple of little cases, but they're right on top of it. That track and trace that everybody talks about, but 
in the UK, it's paid lip service to. No one's really doing it. It's uh, here. They they literally spot every movement where you are. They're on onto you. And anybody who's been close or proximity of anybody that might have it, that we've had you know had the call straight away. They're right on top of it. They take it super super seriously. Uh, Brisbane's just had a couple of cases, and they're going back into lockdown. And they've literally got, I don't know, maybe four or five people that have got it. Wow. I, I saw this thing online a few weeks ago that it was 10 months ago that New Zealand opened up back to normal life and they've just been absolutely fine since, whereas we just keep rolling through another lockdown, another lockdown. It just feels endless. Well, I, you know, having been through the borders a couple of times through the COVID, because I've had to, not to, to be an asshole and, and try and, you know, I had to travel. Totally. For many reasons. So and coming through the borders, there were no borders. No. It was disgusting, to be honest. I mean, you just literally walk through. It's it's nonsense, and um, you know you, you had the QRL code thing, whatever it was, and half the people in the queue didn't even know how to do it, and they just yeah, ignore it and walk through. And you either do it or you don't do it. You know you can't have this half measure and messing around. I think that's what people are getting so frustrated with. Is that it, the rules don't make any sense because we're not really got any rules. We're just making it up as we go along. I remember when I came back to the UK from a holiday in I think it was August, you walk through the borders and they go, hey, can you please fill this track and trace thing in? But there's no one checking. You just, no. they just hope you do it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, it's, whereas here, it's totally the opposite. They are right on top of it. Dedicated sort of places where they will take you, transports all dedicated, teams are dedicated. It's quite intimidating. I, you know, I've, I felt for like some of the, some of the older people that were on the flight, although there weren't many. I just thought walking into that, it's, it's not a nice feeling. No, it's terrifying. I get that. Now, welcome to the Dangerous Dinners podcast, uh, Billy. If this is a bit of a weird one for me, because normally I do it at about 8pm UK time, and I normally crack open a few beers, and it's the end of the day. But because you're in Sydney, it is, it's, I mean, it's just gone at 9am here. And in the wonderful world of entertainment, this is very early for me to be awake. <laughs> <laughs> but but do what I do, mate. You know, you go right. Okay, hmm, he's having a beer. I'm gonna have a beer. It's it's seven o'clock somewhere in the world. It's <laughs> seven eight somewhere in the world. And I, I did this morning because it was our anniversary this morning. So I was actually drinking wine this morning. At, I don't know one o'clock in the, no five o'clock in the morning. So because the time difference with uh, US. So just do it. <laughs> it's five p.m. somewhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right then, before we get going, I've written an, an introduction for you. I write an intro to all my guests. Would you like to hear yours? I would love to hear mine. <laughs> right then. Okay. This man is a straight-up hero. There are no other words for it. Ex-parachute regiment and SAS member. He's trained in counter-terrorist sniper instruction, advanced jungle warfare, demolition sabotage, combat survival, and counter-terrorist instructor. He's got an MBE. He's got the Queen's Commendation for Bravery. After all this, he went on to bodyguard Hollywood A-listers, Tom Cruise and Sir Michael Caine, to name but a few. And you may know him for being Channel 4 hard man on SAS, who dares wins it's billy billingham wow thank you for that introduction mate absolutely amazing how does that sound that's i mean listen it's all accurate it is accurate there's two things i'll, I'll, I'll just pick up, up on there go on i feel, I feel, I feel a hero I, I don't say i'm an hero i've walked alongside a few heroes that's for sure but no i've been i've been fortunate i've done a job that i've really enjoyed and i've took some risks like everybody does um and secondly i'm no tv hard man mate <laughs> <laughs> 
I've been beating up as many times as anybody else, but yeah, I'll have a good go though. <laughs> I am um, after some of the stories I hope we're going to recount during this podcast. I think we will discuss whether or not you're a hero at the end. In my eyes, after what I've heard, you are. But listen, if you don't want to call yourself that, that's fine by me. No, appreciate it. Now then, we've got a giant roulette wheel behind me. This is the point of the podcast. I'm going to spin it. Whatever it lands on tonight is what you are going to be eating. On there, it's a Sydney special. We've got pizza, we've got uh, hot curries, we've got meze, we've got Thai, we've got Chinese, we've got KFC, we've got kebab, and we've got fish and chips. I'll have one of each. Let's I mean, when you've been in lockdown nine days, I guess any anything would be good at this point. Mate, if I could sh- sh- show you a picture of where I am right now, on my table is about 10 brown bags, and that's the food that gets delivered every day. I can't even look at it at the moment. Oh, no. It's disgusting. Also, this is going to be so fun because we've never done an international edition and especially an uh, an edition where we have to deliver food into a lockdown bubble. So I have no idea whether this is going to work. We'll make it work. Right. Count me in, Billy, and I'll spin the wheel. Three, two, one. Spin the wheel. Spin the wheel. There you go. Right. Go on. Tonight, Billy. Yep. You're having Thai food. Whoa! <laughs> awesome. Absolutely, mate. It, it's one of my favourites. You, you, you've, you've done me well. Thank you very much. Okay, so, yeah. so tonight from this Thai place down the road in Sydney, we're going to do you a load of um, classics, but one of my favourite things I'm going to send you tonight is a Thai dish they're calling grilled pork neck. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Very nice. This is so funny because I'm ordering on a, one of those um, delivery apps and obviously I'm in London. It says, you need to check your address. You're a little bit far away from here. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, I wonder if they take American Express. Let's see. Uh, here we go. I'll be amazed if this goes seamlessly. Oh my God, it's uh, done. Seriously? Oh my God, it's it's that simple. I've placed the order. I've given your name and your room number in the hotel and... Yeah, wow. I think it's waiting for payment confirmation. By there you go. Oh my god, it's done. Wow, well, mate. I mean, I'll tell you what. Honestly, I am super impressed, Tom, because I ordered um, two bottles of wine yesterday. Oh my god, you have to have a local phone number. You have to do this. I'm like, oh, it just took forever. I almost gave up. <laughs> right there, Billy. We have got until the food turns up to get to know each other. So you grew up in the um, West Midlands, right? That was your childhood. And I think is it fair to say you were a bit of a um, a bit of a bad lad growing up in gangs you got up to a few things maybe you shouldn't have yeah absolutely was i I was born into a poor family in the midlands you know uh, older brother older sister younger brother younger sister and we lived uh, on a council estate in walsall and but both my mom and dad worked 12 hour shifts so it was difficult for them to sort of control me and from the age of nine is when i really started going rogue and i started getting into hanging about with little gangs and, you know, stealing and doing things and fighting quite a bit and trying to felt, even at a young age, that I wanted to prove myself and, and I thought the way to do it was to be some little tough guy, but obviously later life proved that's not true. But, um, yeah, so I was getting in a lot of trouble and at the age of 11 um, was when I first ended up in court. I think it was ABH, GBH, trespassing and something else. Right. Um, so I was going really, really rogue. And like so I hold say, on, what was what was the trespasser? You just on some land you shouldn't have been. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We we legged it after being fighting. We'd been in a, a couple of little fights with some other little gangs and some older gangs. Actually, they're older people. 
the police came and they chased us and we trying I tried to break into the back of a building to hide so I got done for trespassing as well oh. it went pretty wild from the very early age and the thing is so I mean it is you know People, like a mother, you can never do a wrong for a mother. And the mother will say, you know, he got in with the wrong gang or, or, or in with the wrong people. And the truth is I knew I was the wrong people. I, I knew what I was doing. I was quite kind of street smart already. And I knew how to manipulate my mum and dad. You know, they couldn't really control it. My dad was a big old, old boy, you know, and very, very disciplined. He just, he was working 12-hour shifts. When he came in, obviously mum went out and did 12-hour shifts. So it was just difficult for him to control and I took advantage of it to be honest I think you can tell a lot about a kid from their parents and what they did were they just really busy with work were they sort of out of your life yeah they were they're, absolutely honestly they were doing 12 hour shifts and every now and again my aunties would have to look after us all, sort of over the lap over like you know to get us to school and stuff like that because um, dad would be sleeping when he came in because he did all the night shifts and, and then mom did the day shifts 12 hour shifts going out at 6 coming in at 6 so, yeah, it was a crazy time. I mean, we get time of the weekends and stuff as a family, and we actually had a very very loving family. And I think the other part of the problem was I was the middle child, and if anybody's got a middle child or are a middle child, we are definitely wired different. Right. You know, brothers and sisters weren't getting in trouble. I was. I was going, going out there actively seeking it and starting it. And, yeah, I was going – I was a bad kid. And it's quite funny because I'm going to jump forward. You know, in now, now at times, most of our sort of – party family get-togethers or uh, funerals now because we're all getting older not as opposed to weddings and it's still funny for my aunties that are still alive they'll, they'll come to me and go oh you put the gray in your mom's hair and i'm like hang on auntie I was, i'm 55 now give me a break <laughs> <laughs> now looking back at that do you know people from that time that went on a different path to you like where could have your life gone yeah i do know people i mean some of the people i was in the gangs with and fight against the gangs some of them are in jail. Some are dead. Um, yeah, it could have gone. It could. I, I had so many lucky close escapes, you know. And I think the turning point came when I was fifteen, when I, I nearly died. I ended up in a fight, got stabbed, and I nearly nearly bled to death. And I nearly, you know. And I think that was the wake up call, the real wake up call. You know, I'd had a lot of fights and trouble along the way, um, and and stuff like that. And I kind of felt at the time maybe I'll change, but. The next day I was back into being in trouble and back on the road. And I think 15 was really the turning point. Because um, that was the story, because I, I think I know about this. You were 15, you got in a fight, your mates ran away, but you stayed to sort of fight it out and you got stabbed literally in the back. Yeah, I did. I was fighting uh, with two guys on, on a railway embankment where I lived. And the, the guy I was fighting with was below me. I was trying to kick him in the face. He was like halfway down a bank embankment, and then the next thing I felt was like he felt like a sledge, sledgehammer hitting me in the back. The guy behind me hit me in the back, and it just felt like a real hard punch. And then all my breath went, my, I went all dizzy, and then I just felt as I, I my legs slipped onto the bank and went down the bank, and the knife went all the way up my back. Then from deep into the bottom of the back, and then all the way up my back. And as it came out, I mean they disappeared, legged it, and I was just—it's like that feeling, you know, when you get kicked between the legs and you can't get your breath. Yeah. That's, <gasps> squeaky feeling, horrible feeling. It was like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was like trying to get back to the house, which was only about 200 meters from where this happened. And I started walking back and then I was going dizzy and next to me, I was crawling and I was like, it went from pain to really pleasant, weird, pleasant. You know, I was almost like I was floating. It was really, obviously I was going out of consciousness. And then I got home and sort of crawled through the door and dropped my mum was mopping the floor at the time. And 
oh god I went into panic like you know <laughs> but the first thing she did I got this big open wound on my back she just grabbed the nearest thing which was like a mohair jumper and stuck it on my back Jesus. and I mean that, that that woke me back up I was like this <laughs> is much pain and then yeah and then after there I ended up you know in hospital and being told how lucky I was that I didn't die basically I know I read this thing online recently and it was like a it was a scale of pain and they say stabbing is really up there in the most pain an individual can feel. I mean, yeah. silly question, but did it hurt? Oh, it hurt. It sparked <laughs> my day. Yeah. yeah, it did. And like I say, it went through that real pain, real pain, like a sledgehammer feeling, and that's horrible feeling, like being kicked in the balls. And then, and then to, because I guess I was bleeding to death, I was just going lightheaded, and yeah, and then it kind of went away for a bit. Wow. So, and but I think that was the point where, as I was kind of crawling to the house, thinking, oh, "Oh my God, if I get through this, please get me through this. I'm, I've got to change my ways. I've got to change my style, my my life." And even by then, you know, I, I've jumped a lot of the story where I joined the cadets and I joined the boxing club and all that sort of stuff. There was influential people there that put me on the right track and were keeping me out of trouble to a degree. I guess if I had never met them, I probably wouldn't have got past thirteen. Who were these people? The the first one when I was nine was the guy that I attacked. I, I tried to steal his hat and run, and he caught me. And he chased. I couldn't believe it. He was like seventy, a big old boy, and in his crombie at the, outside the funeral parlour in Warsaw, ran and chased me. And I couldn't get rid of him. My two mates legged it, left me on my own, and he cornered me. Wow! And he stood in front of me like a big old bear with those big hands that Kenny Everett used to have. And he was like that. And, he just, and I was like, oh, and he. But he said, "Look," and this is his words: "Because you, you little shit." He goes, there's something about you. He goes, keep the hat. He goes, come to my boxing gym and told me where the boxing gym was, was downtown at the pub that I knew called the Digbeth, which my dad used to drink in, and uh, about three miles from my house. And I, of course I said yes. So I ended up, which is bizarre, and if you can imagine this, Tom, right? You imagine uh, a nine year, your nine-year-old son going to meet an old man that he doesn't really know, that should have given him an idea, at the back of a pub in February in the dark, it was going to teach him boxing. Wow. You know, and off I went on a February night in the snow, in the cold, around the back of the pub to meet this old guy. Someone told me I had to go and meet him to do this possibly boxing. And, and I did. And I went. And he met me at the door and I pooped my pants, but I followed him. And as I'm walking in, I'm looking around his, the side of him. And I see a bunch of kids from gangs that we've been fighting against and kids from my area uh, training in this old pub floor, you know, where they used to have the disco. It wasn't a boxing gym. And it was illegal as well, of course. I was like, wow, okay. And and that old man, I always say, was the second most influential man in my life other than my dad. And he, he took me to one side and says, listen here, boxing's not a game of brutality. It's a sport of like a poor man's game of chess. Yeah. It's about anticipating, reading what's in front of you, always being ready to move one step forward and, and go that little bit further. And I'll never, ever forget those words. And the way he taught me. And it, it, I couldn't believe this guy who had attacked was... T- putting so much effort and time into me and these other kids. And it was amazing. And eventually he got me into a proper boxing club at the age of 11, passed me over. And then the second guy was, I joined the cadets and it was a guy called Matt Gaunt who became a very good friend of ours. But he treated, over 11 years old, he treated you like an adult. If you stepped out of line, you got a slap. Mm. And I I, I gravitated to it. You know, I thought this is how it should be. This is, it's great. And what, I, what else happened to me there was I was learning things like map reading, medical tra- training, signals. Everything made sense to me. 
And in school, I was learning English and crossing the T's, dots in the I's and, and, and adding. And it didn't make sense to me. I thought, I don't know when I'm ever going to use this. So my schooling really suffered. And I was wrong, of course. But And that led to me being an absolute nightmare at school. Yeah. Fighting all the time at school, getting suspended, always getting what we used to call the strap, you know, across your hands. I had it daily, sometimes twice a day if I was there. Wow. And by the age of 15, thinking I was really tough and clever and it would be a laugh, I glued the maths teacher to the chair. <laughs> and it didn't go down too well because he just paid out. And I remember to this day, apparently he paid back then £30, I believe, for a pair of tweed trousers that no. I just... <laughs> no was, way. Yeah, that was my exit out of school. Jesus. And I never really went back properly. I, I only ever went back every once or twice a week because I was playing football for the B team on a Tuesday and then I had to be picked for Saturday for the A team football. So I'd go Friday. So you had, a, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a rough childhood, maybe self-inflicted, Billy, I might put out there. Um, why the army and how the army and why did you choose to sort of straighten your life up a little bit and go into that? Well, the cadets was the first thing. It gave me, like I enjoyed it. I could see what I was learning it made sense to me. And I, I, believe it or not, as rogue as I was, I did enjoy the discipline, but it had to be hard discipline. Yeah. Plus, you show me, you know, if you stepped around, you, you got put in your place. It's not just threatening them. You got, it, that's what happened. And I, I thought, well, that's how it should be. This is what it is. So I started to gravitate towards it then. And then at 15, I ended up getting a job in a factory, totally illegal. And um, long story short here, but, but I ended up working on the night shift and I had a bad accident. But while I was working at the, at the factory, I met an old guy called Joey Taylor. And Joey Taylor was about 75 years old. He's an old war veteran, amazing old boy. And he, they kind of just gave him a job because he needed a job. He, you know, he should have been retired. And yeah. he, he'd just sit there in his well. He's next to the rats in the little workshop. And I'd go and sit with him at a night time when we'd had a break and then chat to him. And he'd tell me all about the army and this, that, the other. And he, go, he said to me, he goes, you have got to go in the army. He said, that's your destiny. You need to be around the distance. And, and I listened to him. And I thought, okay, and I was, I wanted to join the army. I thought, oh, that's where I'm going to go. And I applied to join as a junior leader because I realized at the age of 16, then the criminal record I had from 11 had be gone as long as I kept my nose clean, which to a degree I did, or I didn't get caught, let's just say. So, uh, and, and that's what I was going to do. And then I had this bad accident. But one day while I was in, at the factory, another old guy turned up and I was driving the forklift truck to load all the work onto his truck. And I'm chatting away to this other old guy and he, he turned to me and goes, is that Joey Taylor? And I went, yeah, he is. Do you know him? He goes, oh, my God. He goes, I was in the army. And he starts telling me about when they were in the war somewhere. I can't remember. I think there was some jungle campaign somewhere. Yeah. He says, when Joy Taylor's on century, on security, he goes, we all slept. He was amazing. And I was listening to this. I was like, freaking hell. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And then I, I goes, Joey, look at it. And there were two old boys just met. And they hadn't seen each other since they left the war, military type days. And they're almost crying. And it was just one hell of a moment. I thought, wow. And they're just chatting about this, that, the other, and they just picked up like this. It was yesterday, and I thought, that's me. That's where I want to go. I've got to do this. A drive to go for the military. So the year is 1983, I think, and you joined yeah. the Parachute Regiment. What does that actually mean? How does that look day to day when you join that? So, I mean, I went to the careers. I knew where I wanted to go. And there's a decision reason why I chose the Parachute Regiment, because I was in the Marine Cadets. And I won't go too deep into that. we we'll talk about that another time. But I ended up joining... We're going for the parachute regiment, knowing it was hard, it's going to be tough. But I kept saying to myself, I've got to prove myself. I want to, I want to prove to me I can be somebody, not this little scumbag in Walsall who's caused all this trouble and a bit of pain in the ass to everybody. I want to now 
be somebody. I want to see if I can be somebody for my family, but for me more than anything, if I'm honest. So I joined the parachute regiment and I get there and day one or two, I've never been out of Warsaw, by the way, you know, so, well, yeah. I've been to Birmingham or, you know, around Aston Villa, bloody fighting, believe it or not. But I, I so I end up in Aldershot in London, which to me is a foreign place. I've never been there. And I end up in Aldershot, I'm on this place square and I'm looking down the line of 70 people, seven zero people who are all recruits with me. And I look like I'm the youngest. I'm definitely the second skinniest or the skinniest. And there's blokes with moustaches, big arms, tattoos. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck have I done? I am way out of my league here. What have I done? And then the back of my mind kept saying, do not give in. You've got to do this. You've got to keep doing this. But anyway, as... as you know, you judge everybody else. And it was the first time I met Scottish people and, you know, it was that deep, hey, pal. Yeah. I was like, gosh, I shit my pants. And now I realise I'm now like, uh, you know, I used to think I was a big fish in a little pond. Now I'm a little fish in a big pond. And I realised it and I thought, I've really got to dig deep and do this. And, and But as the days went by, I was looking down the line of 70 and after four or five days, that line was now, you know, 55. And then a few weeks later, it's now 50. And I was still there. And as I was still there, I was growing in confidence and believing in myself. Were these people leaving because they couldn't do it or were they getting told this isn't for you? A bit of both. Some were just were not, you know, not have the, the qualities they're looking for in terms of fitness or attitude or whatever it was. Or a lot of them, yeah, it was just too tough. They just were like, I can't do it. Because it was tough. It was hard. You know, you're up at five every morning, you're doing horrendous physical training, whether it be a 10-mile run or in the gym for 40, 50 minutes. You know, you come out of the gym, you could hardly stand up. You, It was a beast in. Then you're doing all different sort of military skills all day long, and, you know, you're up at five in the morning, and you're up till midnight, and you're back up at five the next morning. That is relentless all the way through, and you've been screamed and shouted at and put in your place. And these people that are teaching, the instructors, which I owe so much to, I'll be honest, it shaped my life. They, they'd all just come back from the Falklands War. They'd been to war. Yeah. So what they were telling us and standing in front of us, they weren't talking bullshit. They'd done it. Being there, done it. So these were awesome people. Now, as you know, someone that doesn't know the ins and outs of the army, when you join, is there like a rank of different regiments you could join and they go up in how skilled you would have to be? Like, obviously, I've heard of the parachute regiment, but do you have to be a certain level of skill to go in at that point? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you, you have the infantry and the, the trades, you know, engineers, signals and all that, which is... It's less physical. It's it's not as difficult. And blokes listen to go, I don't believe that, but it's not. Yeah. The parachute regiment is one of the hardest training um, selections you'll go through over the SAS selection, same as the Marines, you know. And I will say it's harder than Marines, I believe, but there you go. Anyway, so <laughs> you have to be really, really fit. But, I mean, th- there's a pre-selection to joining whichever regiment you go for, whether you go for the paras or the engineers or, or whatever it might, or the guards or whatever it is. You have to do a three-day course in Sutton Coalfield, and I went to do that, and I was kind of just put in an infantry group, and there was a bunch of guys over to the left who were going for the parachutes, and they're trying to tell me not to do it because I was too light, and I thought, nah. I just snuck into the group. I just went and stood with that group. Wow. And and anyway, so I passed the school, I passed all the tests, and I got in. And yeah, so you know, there was a pre-selection, then the, the actual training as well. It was really, it was tough because I was a young kid. It was hard, you know. I was amongst men and. And there's, and there's no, it's black and white. There's none of this, oh, maybe you pass, you fail. Yeah. You know, and that, that's something I'll never forget is, you know, standing there. I'd, I'd spent most of my bit of school life that I had listening to the word fail because I couldn't pass any exams. I was terrible. Fail, fail. That's all I'd ever heard. 
the first time I really had the word past is when I went to Paris and it gave me strength, it gave me hope, it gave me meaning. And I thought, wow, this is what I want. I guess it and sort it was, of felt like you'd found your place in the world when that happened. I did, mate. And, and so all the way through it, I was kind of putting myself under pressure thinking, there's no way I'm going to fail this. I, I don't, I cannot fail this. I don't want to go back to Walsall in that way of life. And I don't want to, you know, let my family down. Although they weren't putting no pressure on me at all. I, it was me. You know, I just, I just had to prove myself as being a good person because I think this is what I needed. All I'd ever bought was, you know, trouble to the family, being in trouble with the police and fighting all the time and constantly in the hospital getting stitches in, in my legs, my back, my face, my hands. You know, it was a, now I look back and I didn't realise at the time how, what a drama it must have been for my mum, you know? Yeah. Were they proud of you on that day? Oh, mate, absolutely. You know, when it, my dad didn't show it. He's one of these big old bruises. He never showed it. He was like, head stretched, steely face. And, yeah. Yeah. Where's the bar? Not, <laughs> well, when you did this, he was, where's the bar? We're going to have a beer and a chat. And it wasn't until, I'm jumping back and forth a bit here, it wasn't until after my dad died that I realised how proud he really was and, you know, I found all the paper clippings under his bed in his in this box that he kept. He kept everything, but we never really talked about it. And I didn't even think he knew for a long, long while. That was in, actually when I went to the SAS. He had no idea. Wow. Or he never showed that he knew or anything. And he was one one weird thing that stood out. I didn't realise till afterwards. After uh, the hostage rescue in Baghdad, um, Iraq, um, which I was involved in, obviously, he. I was, I'd just come back after it and I hadn't said anything to my mom or to anybody. We're in, in the, the local pub. I met them downtown. They'd been shopping and we pulled, called in for a drink and it was all over the news. And my dad was like paying attention to it, which he never did before. We're just chatting and all this. And as I walked out of the pub, he put his hand on my shoulder and went, you were there. And that was it. Never said wow. anything to him. But when he died, we found all the newspaper clippings and stuff under the bed. Like, you know. God, that's so, that's baby emotion. That's so nice. <laughs> Isn't it? So yeah, I mean, so going through all that training, and I, it, yeah, they were proud, and it was, it was, I was proud. I, I thought I'm going to be somebody now. How do you feel about the fact that your dad could never tell you how proud he was of you? Because I think this is a classic old school dad thing. No, I, I've, I've, I respect it. I have changed my ways a little bit more because I kind of started resenting him. You know, so, so I used to think, hang on a minute, I boxed in the ABAs, I won the Staffordshire to Old Midland Boxing, and I did this and I did that. And he was never there. Yeah. And I thought, he's, never, he's not interested. And then, and I'll be very honest with you, Tommy, it was, when my dad died, it was totally shock to all of us. We weren't expecting my dad to die. I was expecting mom to die. But I did the eulogy. So I sat there the morning of the funeral. I thought, right, what am I going to say? What was, what was my dad really like? And I, I, I analyzed the whole thing of growing And I went, I realized what he was. He was an amazing dad. He was a ring of steel around our family. He was so busy putting food on the table and trying to keep us in a house. You know, it's, it's, he did everything he could. And the reason he wasn't there is because he was either working or he was sleeping to get up for work the next day or, or next night or whatever. Yeah. So, and I really realised how, how strong and how... Yeah, that's such a good point, isn't it? Like, it's such a modern thing to be like, oh, my dad needs to praise me. My dad needs to tell me how good I am. But really, I mean, he's working his arse off to keep food coming in and keep you in a bed. And you know what? If he doesn't tell you he's proud of your boxing, maybe it's because he's a bit too busy and that's okay. It is okay. And he, yeah. it's exactly what it was, you know. And we had a chat before I joined the army. He almost really made me feel terrible as if I weren't going to make it. But I don't know why he did it. He did it to put a rocket up my ass and say, you can do this. Do it. Prove me wrong. He wanted me to, you know. So, 
Yeah, but with me, I, I try to make as much time. Whenever I was home, you know, my life and my kids growing up, I was away all the time in the regiment. We were so busy. All my time in the regiment, we were on war footings from, the, you know, you know, Africa, Europe, all the way through the Middle East and all that sort of From the day, really, I got there to the day I left. It was constant. So I was away a hell of a lot. So I, I missed out on a lot of the growing up of my kids. But when I was home, I just spent every minute with them. I got them out into the, you know, walking, hill walking, riding the bikes, doing whatever I could do. Yeah. We had no bloody money, so we we spent time doing, you know, outdoor stuff that we could we could do. But I made sure I did it because I always thought about not having those times with my, with my dad. But yeah. I look back on it and what I changed a lot, probably not, you know, but the time in the army I was away, it was a hell of a lot. And I'm trying to get to a position in my life now where I can watch my grandkids grow up because I didn't watch my kids grow up. I missed out on it. But there was nothing really I could do. Because those were the years. How long were you in the parachute regiment for? I was in the parachute regiment for nine years. Wow. And then I was in the SAS for 18 years. But actually, officially, I was in the regiment SAS for probably over 20 years. So I did over 30 odd years in the military altogether. So before we move to the SAS, because I've got so many questions on it. Um, in that parachute regiment years, what was your first genuinely scary experience you had? And you were like, Jesus, this is really real. It was... Um, it's interesting should that ask that because obviously you get trained as a soldier and um you know you want to go to conflict you want to see what you like see what it's all about because you've heard all the stories you train for you know disaster and, and war and whatever and you just want to see how, how am i going to react because you don't know you have no idea so <clears throat> when i went out to belize uh, Central America, you know. I remember when I got the, got told in the, I was going to the free free part of my battalion after training, and they're in Central America. And I was so excited around my mom. I was like, "Hey, mom, I'm going to Central America. Chicks, what a beer!" <laughs> yeah. And she goes, "Oi, clown! Listen, because you didn't do your geography, it's not. It's the jungle." And I went, "What?" She goes, "You go to the jungle." <laughs> Why? Right, okay. All right, that'll work. Anyway, so I ended up in this jungle, and, and, and at the time, it was there was quite a bit of hostilities between Guatemala and Belize, and we were patrolling the border, so it was kind of, kind of real. You know, you come in live, I mean, there was a little bit of shooting going on, but the real sort of stand-up moment of, oh, my God, this is dangerous, this is real, was when I left training, before I flew out to Belize, because the battalion was already out there, we did a week of what they call rear party at the battalion lines, and some of the corporals, the instructors, that were running the security of the camp there, there's a guy called Benny, Benny Bentel. He's a huge guy, absolutely awesome bloke. You know, been a lot of experience with the parachute regiment, been in conflict and done all this sort of stuff. And he was the first one, really, after training, who spoke to us like a, like a real person. And he sat us down and goes, right, guys, when you get up to the battalion, this are the, these are the things to look out for. And he was great. He advised us like the big old dad. He says, look, the loud mouth who's going to tell you about how good he is and how many people he's shot and this. He says, forget him. He's done nothing. Because he's, you know, the quiet guy is the one you want to gravitate towards, learn from them, keep your nose clean, climb the ladder and enjoy the career. It's going to be amazing. And I'll, I'll never forget it. But, wow. wow. That is brilliant. He says, actually, guys, he says, I'll probably see you somewhere on that journey because I'm coming out for the last couple of months. He's getting married. I'm getting married. I'm saving a bit of money, and then I'm leaving the army. I've done whatever he's done. I don't know how long it's done. I'm going to make this up probably about 18 years, I think. I thought, brilliant. So I'm now in Belize, and I've been in Belize about six, seven weeks, maybe longer. And I've been out on a few jungle patrols. I'm starting to feel I'm bedding in slowly. And 
I'm stood by the pool by the football pitch next to the, the medical centre and all the alarms went off. And I thought, I don't know, is that somebody's been killed? That's what it means. Right. Or somebody's badly, badly injured. So I'm stood there and I'm watching the helicopter come in. I'm watching the medical teams running onto the, the football pitch, which was the landing zone. And I'm watching and um, the helicopter lands and they bring the body off. And I see it and it's Benny. The guy who told us all this, who, uh, oh my God, my whole world just fell out my ass. I was like, oh my God, this is this is real. Yeah. You know, that this guy who'd done all this stuff and blah, 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 and was going to get married and give us all the advice. There he was, dead. He'd been shot. And I goes, and then I realized, this is real. This is not a fucking game. This is real. Another decision, I, I kind of back and forth in my head while I was stood there saying, do I want to be here? That could be me next. Do I really want? And I went, yeah, I do. I do want to be here. I want to make a difference. I want, I want to be here. And that was it. You know, so that was my feel, real first wake up and scare, if you like, of reality, of what the army is really about. You know, you do dangerous, hard, risky stuff and sacrifices, and that's what's possibly going to happen. You've got to be prepared for that. So... So well, sad because he was just about to leave as well, I guess. He'd done his time. He was. Yeah, he probably got about three weeks left. He made a little bit more money because you get more money when you serve overseas. And he was leaving to get married, believe it or not. Oh. And uh, fortunately, God bless him, he didn't make it. Um, so he did your time in the parachute regiment. And then what's the process in joining the SAS? Because obviously that's a, a regiment that everyone knows about. It's very famous and it seems so selective and so superior. Do they come to you? Or do you apply? No, so it's it's a selection process. You have to um, volunteer to go on selection. So you, you basically the criteria it changes over the years. I mean, from the, the last time I was there as an instructor, it was still the same. But you had to have at least five or six years uh, military service under your belt, and possibly one or two operational Northern Ireland, Cyprus, or wherever Afghan, whatever was going on at the time. I can't remember exactly what's going on. So you have to have some operational experience, five or six years under your belt. Then you you apply to go on, and then yeah, as long as your paperwork's done and your commanding officer of the unit of the parachute regiment agrees, you're allowed to do it. And that's that's how it went. So I decided after nine years, I was back in the depot where all my career started as an instructor myself now. And I thought after this, you know, I'd already been, been on a number of operations. I've got a bit of experience. I was a, a young junior leader, a commander. And I thought, I want to move on. I want to go to the next sort of level. And the next level to me in my head was the SAS. You know, we knew they were doing stuff all the time, all over the globe, didn't know a lot about it. And a few friends had gone there. So I thought, right, that's what I want to do. So I applied to do that. And you had to give back then two years notice. But the CEO said to me, look, you've done all your time down here at the training depot. Give me an extra six months and I'll let you go. So I did. And that's what I did. And then I decided I went. One of 92 and joined... I think it was 283. Don't quote me on the exact numbers. I think it was 283 recruits all turned up at Senate Bridge in Wales to do SAS selection. And it was almost going back in time, standing on the square, looking around all these people. And we all do this, thinking, God, he's massive. He's going to be all right. These are all bigger than me. They all look better than me. They're... Yeah. You want to put yourself down a little bit. But again, same process. Give it a week. Half of them are gone. I'm still there. Starting to believe in myself again. More confidence and... Yeah, it went from there. What's the and hardest thing about that training? Is it the physical side or is it the mental 
pulling apart that you go through? 100% the mental. And it's you get led into a false sense of security or, or a false sort of idea of what they're looking for because everybody thinks, you know, you know you, the first part of it is all physical. It's, it's carrying the equivalent to a freaking house on your back and going, you know, all day long, 30, 40, 50 kilometers up and down over mountains and you're navigating so and you're on your own. And you've got to keep going, you know, at a set speed. It's all timed. And, but the, the hardest thing is, so you think, wow, that's what it's all about. But, you know, and then on day two, we lost 80, 80 odd people, I think. Although it's the training, people die during this, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a number of people died on selection. We had three on one, one particular section. Selection died. Wow. A few years ago. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. But it, it, it's meant to be. Yeah. You know, and you should be prepared for it. And really, you know, I saw people who were training a lot longer and harder than me, but they just didn't have it mentally. They went on day two as well. And I couldn't believe it because it's in your head. It really is in your head. You've got to want it and you've got to believe in yourself and you've just got to keep going. And, you know, just it's not impossible. It's more or less impossible. It's not impossible. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. much impossible. 283 started and seven of us finished. Oh, man. You know, so, yeah, but, 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 Selection isn't – so I thought it was all about that first phase, that first month and a half or whatever it is, you know, because um, I can't really say exactly what it is, um, where it's all the physical and you end up with at the end of it about 30 people left that they take to the jungle. The jungle is the hardest part of selection. It's horrendous. And I thought – I went with the wrong wrong sort of frame of mind because I'd already been to the jungle now twice. I thought I knew the jungle. I thought I knew what it's about. No. The jungle, it's, the jungle is where you are watched, you know, 24 hours a day. You don't even realize you're being watched. You've been watched all the time. You are, you know, you're in this claustrophobic, there's a lot of pressure on you. You're navigating, you're keeping your cool. It's not hard, hard soldiering. It's very basic. There's nothing special about this. It's about, but what they're looking for, they're looking for you. What are you really like? You know, we can all put up this persona of in front of people go, oh, helping everyone else and being all nice and kind. But then when you're not think you think you're not being watched and the chips are down and you're slamming your the equipment around you, arguing with people, you're, you know, a pain in the ass. That's what they're looking for. The person who can show self-motivation and be really who they are. And that's what they're looking for because then they'll shape you into what comes later on in the regiment. And so the jungle was really, really hard, you know, because the thing is, the hardest thing about all this as well is you don't get shouted at. There's no, no shout. You can go whenever you want. And for the first time in the army, no one is pushing you and shouting at you. And that's the hardest thing. You've got to know, You've got a decision to make yourself, and no one's going to put you down because you say, okay, I'm not doing it. They'll just go, okay, Billy, no problem. Go and wait over there, and the helicopter will pick you up, and then good luck. Bye. <laughs> That's it. You know, they say, you're going, to be, you're going for me. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And they talk to you just like I'm talking to you now, and off you go. Yeah. For a lot of people, they can't, when they, you know, when they start to feel tired, exhausted, leeches all over your body, you're sweating all day long, you kind of, oh, you look for any excuse you can, and, most of the people that go are excuses. They really are. Very few people have got the balls to stand up and say, you know, this is too fucking hard. Yeah. They'll go, oh, I'm missing my wife, and, oh, this is not what I thought it was, or I don't like the DS. It's just nonsense. It's just hard. It's just admitted. It's hard, and it's mentally hard, and physically hard as well. But it's a mental thing that gets you. How did it feel when you joined the SAS? What was your, what was your role from that point? Joining the SAS was an all new world. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I was expecting, you know, well, what I was expecting was, you know, constantly in uniform, constantly soldiering somewhere, blah, blah, blah. But this all new world opened to me. I turned up there and I'm thinking, 
other than a few little operational, you're accepted straight away, by the way. You get there, you go to your squad and you go to your troop, whatever they may be. I went to B squad and mountain troop. And whatever they're doing at the time, you kind of, it's almost like they all knew you, know who you are anyway. And yeah. you've been there forever. You're like, oh, hey, Billy, how you doing? Yeah, nice, mate. Get some cup of tea. Yeah, come and join them. And then, oh, there's an operation going on. There's a job going on somewhere in some crazy part of the world. And they go, okay, let's grab a team for that. Billy, come with us. You're on this team. And you're sat there with everybody else going, oh, I, I don't know anything. What, what they're doing? But you'd expect it to put, have a little input right from the word go. And then you're on a plane and you're off doing whatever you're doing. And then the next thing, you know, I was, you're doing a, an intense medical course, for example, 10 weeks of this solid, where you've got doctors from all over the world coming and teaching you and putting you through these faculties. And it really is. And then all of a sudden, you, I got, then I'm, I'm working at the Royal London Hospital for a month. Wow. As a doctor. And, you know, I'm on an helicopter going down Oxford Street, jumping out, running out, pulling somebody out of a car and putting a chest drain in the middle of the road in his chest. My God. Where is this? Because it's all relevant to what, you know, because you're on your own now. Like, so you do that. I've done a month at an hospital, a 10 weeks of training, then I'm back on an helicopter flying into somewhere to do an operation in all my uniform again with the rest of the guys. And then the next thing, the next month, I'm in a language school in Beaconsfield for 14 weeks learning a language I didn't even know existed. And I didn't even know out of the country before. Wow. So this world is just so wild and diverse and, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And then, and you realize how serious it is and how important our role is and how people have to trust in what you do and what you say, because you realize what, what I'm doing is it's strategic level stuff. And it's, you know, it's policy changing, it's life saving, it's, it's, it's governmental, you know, economy saving stuff. The words coming out of my mouth will make a decision on, you know, whether 3,000, 4,000, 20,000 soldiers have to deploy to another country or whether this country is going to go to war. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's amazing. Unbelievable. This may be me jumping around timelines, but you got given the Queen's commendation for bravery. Yeah. When was was that? Why you were in the SAS? Yes, it was. What was yeah. that for? It was for an operation across in Northern Ireland. You know, we um, we had we had a guy over there that was basically killing people, um, sniping. We've been after him for years, and the only way we could really catch him is to put in a decoy. Somebody be the bait for him, basically drive him out, and basically that's what I did. I ended up being his target him coming to try and kill me and then the guys capturing him, which is what happened. Yeah. Um, was that a role you put yourself forward for? Well, you kind of get asked if you want to do it, but if you're being asked, really you're being told. But yeah, yeah I would have done we, we all know the only way we could have done this is to do that. Somebody had to do it. Otherwise, another innocent person is going to die. And they'd already killed 13 people in cold blood and they'd literally killed another young kid literally a week before. And I thought, it's enough. We've got, we've got to do this. The operation, it was an absolute awesome guy, you know, working quite a bit. He, I had full trust in him that, you know, this guy ain't going to get a chance to squeeze the trigger before he gets that close. The guys will have him in the did. So he was going after British Army people or just yeah. anyone? Killing young soldiers. No, young right. soldiers. Yeah, I was his next volunteered target so that we could get him. So, yeah, that's what it was for. Wow. Um, through this whole period, because there's so much to talk about, but during this whole time in the army, what was the scariest position you found yourself in? 
Because, I mean, there's already a million stories you've told that sound like they would be this story. I think every single one of them has a, a, you know, a little piece of danger. And, and I don't think, uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, I'm not big-headed. I don't think I've re- ever been that really scared of anything like that, the chance of getting killed. I kind of accepted it because that's what we do. And, you know, you've got to take those risks. And don't get me wrong, I'm no sort of lunatic of things, oh, I'll just run into the fire. I, I, I do, you know, risk assessing my whole head and... and I always put myself in the best position I can, but there's always that danger. So I've had a lot of those situations. Um, I think scary is make some of the decisions I've had to make, you know, where I've had to talk to very powerful people, you know, either in government or in the military and, and make a decision based on what I've seen and what I believe. And because you kind of, you question yourself, have I got this right? You know, and uh, your heart's in your mouth and you think, I've got, you know, and one of the things that is going from head is, you know, I left school at 13, I've got no education, and I'm now telling the the, the government which way we're going to turn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have massive effect. So, I mean, they're, they're kind of the scary things that, you know, I think about that have been in my head in the past where, you know, making those decisions, not so much the physical stuff. You know, I've had some ridiculous situations, you know, bad crash, road crashes, vehicles being blown up and all sorts of shit. But... It, it, you walk away from all the stuff that you do walk away from and it's a cold light of day, you know, when you're just getting into your bed that night and you're in your little room and you look at the pictures of your kids and, and your missus at the time or whatever and, and you just and then you start to reflect on what you've just done and then you might have lost a good friend or injured or whatever and you, and then then it hits you, you know, you have that dark moment for a little bit and you think, what am I doing? Is this worth it? Why am we doing this? In a complete change of tact your Thai food's around the corner. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very close. We're up to the most exciting point where we're going to see actually how it tries to get into uh, get into your hotel, but the Thai food is, um, is around well, the corner. Well, you'll leave me setting up the upside rope in a minute because that window's going through. <laughs> you're, you're more than trained to get down to them, right? Oh, absolutely. Don't worry about that. Now, this is something I've heard, and I don't know if this is true for you, but there is a certain draw back to the adrenaline rush of these situations. And when you go back home, you feel a bit lost because you're not in the adrenaline rush situations anymore. Did you find that? Did you find there was a draw to be on the front line and be fighting? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Without a shadow of a doubt. When, you know, you come back from operations and you're exhausted. You are absolutely burnt out physically and mentally. You don't, you won't admit it and you don't really see it in yourself. And you're always craving the next thing. You know, you come back from, and over to another squadron or wherever it is, and you're back home, and you're hearing they're going out doing this, and you just want to get back out there. And you, and it's 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 a very selfish life, if I'm honest, you know, because the families there are sat there waiting for you, and they don't know what the hell's going on, and you kind of put them to a side for the love of the job. It's not the money, because the money's shit. You know, you really do. You put it to the, to the side, and you just want to be there because this is what I'm here for. This is what I've got to do, and I can do good things. And I can. And you want to keep getting out there and doing it, even even after you leave the military. You know, not just after you leave the squad, and after, after you've left the military, you're like, oh, I want to be back in there. Then I feel like there was a turning point. I don't know where it was. I was sat in a cafe one time, and I just heard I, I hadn't long come back from somewhere, and it was a great job had just happened that I'd been waiting to do, and somebody else did it, and I was so jealous. I was like, ah, oh, wow. I want to be back in there. And then I then I sat and had a coffee, and I thought, you know what? 
there's a reason why I've walked away from all the stuff that I have. There's a reason that I've got away with what I've got away with. There's a reason why I've succeeded and why I've succeeded. Hold on. So know. when you say a job, this you mean like someone went on a raid or there was a there yeah. was a military operation <laughs> that was very much front line, guns in hand. Yeah. You could have died, and you were jealous that you weren't there. Yeah, wow. I was jealous of being part of that, you know. But then that that thing at that moment, I remember I was sat at the coffee shop and I thought, you know what, I've had such a lucky awesome time this might not have been my time had i been there i might not have been the person to come back i yeah. might not so i i, I think I, I i felt comfortable with myself to say i've done enough i've done more than enough it's just being greedy now and, and stupid to take any more sort of risks although i couldn't anyway i wasn't going to get back out there that's for sure but you know but yeah you do you still crave it you crave the the challenges the unknown the fear and adrenaline sort of combination of a situation that you'll never ever deal with anywhere else and you miss the camaraderie you know you miss the, the guys the guys will be right on your rigging heel or your side through thick and thin i guess there's no friendships like the friendships you make when you go through things like that with people uh, no absolutely not you'll never you can never you can never get that anywhere else because no one's challenged that way anywhere else you know you might be working in the you know, this sort of um, commercial industry outside of the military and you're bidding on fighting for a contract and all that sort of stuff. It's, it, there's nothing like that. After the army, you took a well-trodden path into security, right? Yeah. But it wasn't any security. You ended up guarding Hollywood A-listers, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Kate Moss. How did that happen? Towards the end of my career, um, I started doing a little bit of moonlighting. You know, I was like thinking about what should I do when I get out. And a good friend of mine was running all the security for all the celebrities in the TV world. And he says, hey, I've got a few little jobs if you want to help me out. So I sort of dipped my toe in the water before I left and I went and did a couple of little security jobs. I thought, oh, well, I can do this. Yeah, this is all right. It's not too bad. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the adrenaline rush or the madness that I've been used to. But yeah, this is fine. So I did. And then I threw the bits and pieces I'd already done before I left. I, I got... You know, through t- through the guy who gave me the job, it, I got a little bit of a reputation. People started to know about me and trusted me already. And then, then the job came up. You know, I got offered a job with um, Brad and Angie, and I thought, well, you know what, it's time to go. I've done all my time, and yeah, and that was it. Then I stepped out, and that's that's the direction I went. When you say you got a job with them, is that a round the clock security for Brad and Angelina? Yeah, yeah, it was full on, full time sort of. Um, at the time, I was deputy to someone someone else was like the uh, head of security and i was working for him with them two of us on the same job and, and then later on i became sort of stepped up after he sort of moved on do you stay in their house how does that work sometimes you do yeah you're literally in the next room to them sometimes or sometimes you'll be you know as close as you need to be it, it all depends on what you deem as the reason or necess- necessity because of security so yeah, many a time we slept at the same, we were in the same house or in the same next hotel room and whatever. You know, you need to be where you need to be, which is close to them where needed. But again, you are expected to make that judgment. You know, there are times when they need their peace and their quiet and they're away from everyone. And as long as security reasons it was safe to do that, we did that. And there was many times we did that. Would you ever have a disagreement with them? Or not them specifically, but would you have a disagreement with clients over the fact that they wouldn't want you somewhere and you're like, no. For security, no. I want to be here. No, no chance. They uh, that was a, they that made was a, the call. No, that was the beauty. The beauty of the 
and it worked every time for me, thank God. I don't know if it works for everybody, but for sure for me. We had such a great mutual respect with everybody that I worked with. I, you know, I made it very clear. My job is security. Da, 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 da. I understand you've got commitments and you've got this, and I will do everything I possibly can to faci- facilitate them. If I'm telling you, no, we can't do it, you've got to take that. We wow. ain't doing it. And it, and it, it worked to treat me. Absolutely worked to treat. To be fair, I think if you turned around to me and said, Tom, I don't think you should do this, I think I'd listen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was what we just pulled up at the door. I just heard the knock at the door. Oh, the here, the food's here. Right, one second. 
and when I get there, the thing you have to do as a security guy is the people, you know, know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a lot of reconnaissance records you have to do. Right. You know, you check out the venues, you got to check out the drivers, you got to check out, you know, the the venues they want to go to. You got to get as much done as you possibly can before they get into into city into the country or wherever it is. You know, you got to make sure the security in the hotel is good. They can get in, they can get out. There's no. So I get to the hotel, which is a beautiful hotel. I can't remember exactly where it was. It was one of the best, of course. When I get there, I have a look at it. It's, it's gorgeous. There's really the problem I already see. Is there's only one way in and out, and it's one of those bloody rotating door things, which I hate. Right. Okay, no worries. But as I come out after checking where the rooms are and all this sort of stuff, there's, a, there's about I don't know thirty or forty people, cameras hanging around, paparazzi, and I'm like, oh shit, because this is supposed to be low key. So I'm like. Pretend I don't know anything. I talk to this guy who spoke a bit of English, an Italian guy, paparazzi, and he says, what's going on? He says, oh, yeah, Tom Cruise is coming. I went, really? I was like, okay, are you sure about that? He goes, yeah, 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 Tom Cruise is coming. Right. Right. So I'm going to call him Pablo for the sake of it. I says, can I word with you, mate? He goes, yeah. I says, listen. I said, I'm his bodyguard. I says, he's the deal. I said, uh, we don't want none of this asshole around the front of the, the – uh, uh, hotel here, blah, blah, blah. I says, he's supposed to be low-key. Can you make sure that, you know, he keeps us a space, leave us alone? He goes, well, yeah, fair dudes, as long as, can we get a couple of photographs? I goes, well, I'll have to clear that with him, but I'll try and do that, you, and then just give us a space, leave us alone. He goes, yeah, no problem. So I thought, okay, so I carry on doing Maraki, do all this stuff, and then I go to the airport and meet him. I meet him, introduce myself, and it was like I knew him forever. We got him really well. So I'm chatting, and I says, Tom, I'm sorry, mate, but they already know the paparazzi are here. And he goes, oh, shit. He really wanted to keep it low-key. I says, I'm sorry, but they already know. He goes, okay, so what's the situation? I says, there's about 50, maybe 60 of them outside the hotel, but they're going to leave us alone as long as I've kind of agreed, as, as long as you do. We stop for five or ten seconds. They get some pictures and leave us alone. He goes, okay, no problem. We'll do that. So I'll get to the We're coming back to the hotel now. He was a little bit pissed off about it. And as we approach the hotel, I can't even see the front door. So there's got to be 100, 200, maybe 300 freaking people there. I was wow. like, oh, my God, what the am I going to do? And it's me and him. And my eyes are like massive looking out the window, and, he, and I'm trying to see what he's doing. And he's looking at me thinking, 40 people? I can't. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. So I turned around to him and said, right, Tom, stay where you are. Stay in the car. Lock the doors. Just keep an eye on me and watch for hand signals from me as what to do. And he, yeah, okay, no problem. So I get out and I'm looking around these ants and I'm looking for this guy that I'd spoken to, Pablo. And I'm thinking, and out of the blue, there he is in his blue shirt. I went, Pablo, I told you, <laughs> I warned you. And he, and, and he was, mate, you could not make this up. And he's like, he said something in Italian. No, God, I have no idea what he said. It was like the parting of the waves. Everybody just moved left and right of the walkway all the way down to the, the entrance. Wow. And I, I'm like, <laughs> the guy, I went, wow, fucking hell. And I look round and Tom's looking at me going, what have you just done? And I'm like, playing it Mr. Cool now. Yeah. So I go back to the car and say, okay, get out, no worries. I goes, here's the deal, mate. Stay on my left-hand side. We're going to walk all the way down, um, stay right close to me. When we get to the doors, we'll turn around. You can do your photos. I'll step to the side a little bit. And then we're in. He goes, yeah, no problem. So as we're walking down, people are like trying to lean in. And I'm like, well, and they move back. And it's making me look really good. Anyway, we get down to the just before the entrance. Now in my head, I'm thinking, right, how do I get into this frigging rotating door? Shall I get in with him? Is it too tight? And, I'm, and that's going from my head. So we turn around, we get the photographs. And as we turn around to step in to the thing, I just see from the corner of my right eye something blue running at me. 
And I'm like, I haven't got time to even look that way. So I'll, I'll grab him with my left hand, try to grab him around the shoulder. And I think I'll go him around the neck. And then I grab this thing running at me. So I've got this head in my right hand, head in my left hand, and I drag the ball into the foyer of the, 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 the rotating doors. And as I'm going around the rotating doors with these two heads in my hand, Tom looks at me, this person looks at me, and Tom goes, hey, meet my girlfriend, Penelope. <laughs> <laughs> so we eventually get into the... Amazing, the amazing. She had this big bloody um, blue... Um, jean type hat on and anyway that falls off her head's all messed up and we're getting the lift and she's all you know hating me by this space and he goes oh Billy let's do an official this is Billy Penelope this is Billy <laughs> so, <laughs> so Penelope yeah so that was that situation through the rotating got, doors yeah we got on fine after that I'm sure you did <laughs> I mean if there was ever a situation to prove you know what you're doing that sort of ticks that box right yeah absolutely um, so this was sort of your move out of security into film and TV, which is obviously where I sort of came across you on SAS Who Dares Wins, and that's when you came on the show a few years ago. Um, yeah. But you did a you did a film for Sean Penn, right? Yeah, I did. Um, and the reason you got this job was because you saved one of his friends from a basement in the middle of nowhere, right? I'm probably telling this story awfully. You could probably tell it far better than I can. Yeah, long story short, I met I met Sean. Obviously, while I was working with Brandon Angie, we became real friends. I never bodyguarded Sean. He never needs one. But I have helped him out on a lot on advice for security and this, that, the other. So I'm in Haiti some years after, and lo and behold, after the earthquake, doing some stuff, and he turns up, and I make sure, and we get, get talking. Anyway, after a period of time in, in Haiti, he, um, I, I built, I actually ended up building a, an hospital, a school, and a, an hotel. And while I'm in my hotel, Sean, Sean used to go and stay there quite a bit. And then one night, I'm at the bar with my, my now wife, have a few beers, and Sean comes in, and he's all disheveled. And I'm, I'm looking at him, and I say, hey, mate, what's up? And he goes, can I have a word with him? I goes, yeah, what's up? What's going on? And he tells me, he says, hey, I've got a real good friend of mine. He's he's out in China. Uh, where was he? He's in China? Yeah, he's in China. It says he's um, he's trapped. He goes, he's out there with the media, and it's all gone wrong, and that he's basically trapped, and he's scared for his life. We can't get him out. He goes, is there anything you can do? And I went, hang on a minute. Let me, let me leave it with me. So I'm thinking, right, let me make a few calls. Who are we doing? I'll phone a few people I know. And as we do with the connections you get with the regiment, says, yeah, I, we know a few teams that are out there. It's only it was in Egypt. Was yeah, Egypt. I think I thought it was the Middle East. Yeah, it was Egypt. It was Egypt. And I said, right, okay, let me make a few calls. So I made three different calls, three different people. And went, yeah, two of them had, had got involvement in, it was when all the elections and the riots were going on in Egypt. Yeah. And uh, he says, yeah, I've got, I've got some teams out there. I goes, right, here's the deal. Can, uh, so I got all to, they give me the, the contact to the guys on the ground. I managed to get all to them on a, a satellite phone that I had. And I was, here's the deal. I says, look, we've got a friend in a particular hotel, da 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 One of the guys goes, yeah. He goes, I know where that hotel is. We, we are X amount of 100 meters from it. And the other guy goes, we're so-and-so from it. So we kind of triangulated it. I says, can you help us out here? We need to, I need to really get him out. He says, yeah, okay, give me the details. Tell him this. And he come back to me and says, look, he goes, I says, he's in the basement. He's not going to open the door to anybody. They're petrified. They're bolted in. I says, we need a cold word. So um, I said, basically, when you get in there, if you as you go down the st- stairs, you have gold, gold, gold. And then my client that is trapped will know that it's, he's safe. He's with friendly people. And he'll come out and then please help him out. And they went, yeah. okay, let's do that. So I, I organized all this and then forgot about it. And uh, two or three hours later, 
I'm still at the bar. I'm now freaking K-Lied with my wife. I'm drunk, virtually <laughs> drunk. And I turn around and Sean comes walking back in and he drops to his knees and he's going, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Yeah. Messing about. What the fuck are you doing? He goes, how the hell did you do it? I don't know what. And he goes, he's out. They've got him out. He's on. He's on, actually at the airport now getting on a plane. Wow. How did you do it? What got all about it? I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, so it worked out. So we, we, we stayed friends for, real good friends for a long time. And then after 80, I ended up spending about three years in 80 at this particular time. I took a break and I came home. And Sean was out there setting up an NGO as well. So we bumped into each other quite a bit. And uh, I was back in Hereford and my wife was in Florida. I was about to go back over to Florida to her. I was in a pub with a bunch of the lads and I get a phone call and it's Sean. And he's, he goes, hey, I want you to come to um, Barcelona. I went, mate, I can't. I'm going up to, he knew my wife. So I'm going up to see Jules, mate. I goes, no way she's going to have that. He says, no, mate, I really need, and he won't tell me why because that's what Sean's like. He goes, I need your help, mate. I need you to come. I says, mate, I can't do it. I really can't do it. I've got to go and see her. Yeah. And he goes, look, it's nothing dangerous. He goes, it's nothing dangerous. He goes, I'll tell you what, and we'll put a fly, we'll fly Jules over as well if you want. I went, oh, okay, wait a minute. So I called Jules up and I said, hey, babe. Um, and as soon as I said Sean, I goes, Sean. She goes, no. I went, hang on a minute. <laughs> I goes, and she goes, no. I says, listen, he wants us to go to Billy. No. I says, but there's a ticket for you as well. And she goes, okay, I'm coming to London. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. So we end up in Ibiza and he still doesn't tell me. And he goes, when he gets to the airport, he goes, when, sorry, I, 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 um, Barcelona. He says, when when he gets to the airport, I'll send uh, Ethrow. He says, I'll send you a document. So I'm at Heathrow and he sends me this document. It's a frigging script. And I'm like, what the hell's this? And it's got my name. It's me, Idris Elba, frigging Ray, Ray Winston, Mark Rylance, uh, Javier Bardot, and all, all these names. And me. Yeah. Like, What's, what the hell is this? And he was a film, The Gunman. <laughs> he had me down as a the 10th actor, uh, as one of these uh, assassins, you know. Amazing. Paul uh, Reed. It was just... It was just hilarious. So I ended up down there doing that, which was, you know, brilliant time and, and some weird experience, but probably what I, I probably always said I'd never do again, but absolutely, I, I don't know if I would, but it was good fun. Not bad for a boy from the West Midlands, right? No, no. And then there was it in this bloody film. You know what, Billy? I think that's a really nice point to end the podcast from getting in fights and getting stabbed to finding yourself in Barcelona filming a film for Sean Penn. I think that's a really nice, beautiful, full circle moment. Thanks, Tom. Um, Billy, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the Dangerous Dinners podcast. Uh, as I say, I feel like I'm at that point in a party where I realise I've chatted to the person all night and they've not spoke to anyone else. And I'm like, maybe I should go, <laughs> go home now. Um, tonight, Billy, you had Ty from Sydney, yeah. direct from London. We sent you pork neck. Can you please rate and review the meal? I've eaten three pieces as we've been talking pork neck and I've had one of the satay uh, chicken sticks, which I'm, I'm ain't kidding you, mate. Out of ten, nine. Oh, what a joy. What a joy. Honestly, absolutely brilliant. This is the difference, right, Billy? I've had guests on this podcast who've complained about the pizza not being good enough. We send you yeah. pork neck and you're like, my God, it's a dream. Mate, it really is. It's, you should try this. It's gorgeous. Um, now, I'm going to do the plugging for you because I'm a fan of yours. The first book of yours I read um, was The Hard Way, which I still have, which is out right now. You've got a new book coming out, right? Yes, I have, yeah. Call to Kill. 
um, which people can go and get. Uh, SAS, Who's Dares Wins, will be back on TVs real soon. Go and read The Hard Way. I've read it. It's incredible. The man is a legend. It's uh, Billy Bingham. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And thanks for the meal. Cold food, but hot guests. It's the Dangerous Dinners Podcast. Very nice. Spicy episode, that one, wasn't it? Bit of a long one. Hour and ten minutes. Um, Fact fans, I think that's our longest episode yet. But I mean, where would I... I can't edit Billy. What are you going to edit out of Billy's stories? What bit, you know, how am I going to take stuff out of him telling me about fighting and, like, his mates dying and stuff? I can't edit that. So I left it all in. Uh, I hope you liked it. I hope you enjoyed that one. A little bit of a different one for the podcast, but I really enjoyed Billy giving up his time live from Sydney. Anyway, if you enjoyed it, please make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Go and leave us a review, a rating. Make sure it's five star, my guy. If you want to go and watch all our best bits, they're on YouTube right now. We've got Twitter, we've got Instagram, and I'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.